are listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, please visit EnduringWord.com. Today I'm speaking to you from Europe. I'm here in Germany, in a city in Germany called Siegen. It's a smaller city, uh, but it's a real city. It's certainly not a village. It's a legitimate city here in Germany. And we lived here for seven years uh, some time ago. I was the director of a small international Bible college here. And my wife, Ingalil, and I, together with our children, we enjoyed seven wonderful years of ministry here. We, uh, we really enjoyed our time. And this is the first time that I've been back to Zegan uh, in the last two and a half years. Obviously, with the global pandemic, it's changed a lot of travel plans for people. And some places have been a little bit more strenuous to get into and have a little bit more restricted freedoms. But we're very pleased to be able to come here and visit dear, dear friends. Uh, today, we came and had the most wonderful time meeting with Pastor Alex Kruse of the Calvary Chapel Zegan here and many other dear friends throughout the day. Uh, and then a wonderful dinner this evening with uh, Andrew and Miriam Ran, who have just been uh, wonderful friends and co-laborers in our seven years here and friends ever since. So... My wife, Ingalil, and I were here in Sweden, and we just thought that's no reason why we can't do a live Q&A, uh, even on location. I've done on a location in uh, Bahrain, in Tennessee, from a roadside in Arizona, and now I can add uh, Germany to the list next week, uh, God willing, and if we live, I'll be doing the Thursday program from my... Um, in-laws home in Sweden. And so that'll be then. So in any regard, uh, I'm glad that you could join me for today's question and answer time. This is how we structure it. Uh, I begin with a lead question, something that's come in by email, social media. Perhaps it was a question that I wasn't able to get to on a previous question and answer time. And then we just kind of go from there. So this particular lead question comes from Marlene, and she submitted this, I believe, on Instagram. And Marlene asks this, concerning Proverbs eleven eighteen, chapter 11, verse 18. Do you know if the reward we receive will be on this side of eternity also? Or is the word meant to be in heaven also or only? Thanks for your comment on this and be blessed. Uh, thank you so much for that. Uh, Marlene, I appreciate the question. You're really asking a very good question. Are believers rewarded now or are they rewarded in eternity? That's really the question that we're dealing with today. So let me go back to the passage of scripture that you originally cited as a uh, sort of a launching point for this particular question. Proverbs chapter 11, verse 18, which reads this. The wicked man does deceptive work, but he who sows righteousness will have a sure reward. I think this wonderful, wonderful uh, proverb here. First of all, it speaks about the wicked man. Uh, when somebody works with deception and dishonesty, it's a evidence of wickedness. A, a, a wise and honest person knows that what they do must be done in a way that shows forth integrity, honesty. So a, a wicked man does deceptive work. But then the corollary to that here, that the second part of this particular proverb reads, he who sows righteousness will have a sure reward. In other words, God's stating this principle here in the Proverbs that the righteous man, the righteous woman will surely have a reward. And that's something for us to think about here. God promises reward to the righteous man, the righteous woman. Uh, again, I, I, I'd say this is something for you, whether you're viewing in on YouTube, TWR360, uh, Facebook Live, we want to welcome our entire audience and just ask you to see here, God promises to reward the righteous man, the righteous woman. Now, how will they be rewarded? 
This is a great question from Marlene. Will they be rewarded in this life or will they be uh, rewarded in the life to come? Uh, eternity. Well, let, let's go over some principles here. First of all, I would answer this way. Believers will be rewarded both now and in the life to come. Again, I don't think it's an either or proposition. We shouldn't say, well, the reward that we receive from God is now and not in the life to come. Nor do we want to say that the reward we receive from God will be in the life to come, but not in the here and now. I believe it's both and. And let me walk you through some passage of scripture relevant to this. Jesus said this to assure us of the reward we would receive. Matthew chapter 19, verse 27, Jesus said, And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my name's sake shall receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. You see that? Jesus sort of put the reward into two categories, shall receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. Now, again, we we don't want to make more, uh, let, let me put it this way, we don't want to make these words more specific than Jesus intended. But I think we can see here that there's a generous reward for those who do righteously and sacrifice anything for the sake of Jesus Christ. God promises reward. You could say, and again, we want to avoid being more specific than Jesus intended, but you could say that the hundredfold refers to reward given to us in this life, and eternal life refers to that which is given to us in the life to come. Now, a hundredfold of what? Well, Jesus didn't mean this in sort of a literal sense, because notice, of the uh, sacrifices that Jesus mentioned in Matthew chapter 19, verse 27, he says, uh, who left houses, brothers, sisters, father or mother or wife. Jesus wasn't saying that if if you um, choose me over your spouse, your husband or wife, my reward to you isn't going to be give you a hundred husbands or a hundred wives or a hundred houses. He's just speaking of multiplied return. And in what way might we be rewarded in this life? Well, let me give you an example of earthly reward from Jeremiah chapter 29. I'm going to read that familiar verse. It's familiar to many of you. Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11. I'm going to read all the way through the first phrase of verse 14. Here it is. God speaking to Israel. For I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and go and pray to me, and I will listen to you. And you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. And I will be found by you, says the Lord, and I will bring you back from captivity. Now, I understand that this verse was originally given as a promise to God's covenant nation in ancient times, the people of Israel. But but I, I want to insist to you, God is not less generous to believers under the new covenant than he was to Israel under the old covenant. And so we have grounds for saying that in principle, uh, this reflects the heart of God towards his returning repentant people. And, and what are the blessings promised here in Jeremiah chapter 29, verses 11 through 14? Well, first of all, God says peace and not evil. That would be God's thoughts, his disposition towards us. A future and a hope, that's a blessing that we can have in this life right now. Um, to have God answer us when we call out to him, what a blessing that is. Uh, to have God reveal himself to us when we seek him. Notice that phrase here. And you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. In other words, God says that this is a blessing, a reward I will give. He says, I will be found by you and I'll bring you back from your captivity. God will will turn to things that once were sources of bondage and difficulty for us. 
So all of these things are examples of how we might be rewarded right now in the year and now. Let me tell you something. To have God's thoughts towards you be of peace and not of evil, that's blessing. That's reward right now. For God to give you a future and a hope, that's reward right here, right now. For God to answer your prayers, that's reward right here, right now. To, to have God reveal himself when we seek him, that's reward right here, right now. And for God to bring us back from captivity, from free us from things that previously were bondages. All these things are examples of ways that God might reward the believer right here, right now. Now, the Bible also describes heavenly reward. Listen to this from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. Paul wrote, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. In other words, there will be rewards given to faithful believers and in the way Paul structures it here by, again, inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Paul wasn't just making this up as if it was his opinion. He was guided by the Holy Spirit of God to speak forth the words of God there will be greater reward for those who have been more faithful, more fruitful, more God-honoring, more God-glorifying in their life before him. And so this is heavenly reward that's spoken of here. I also think just in general, and I won't read this passage to you, but you may be familiar with the section that we often call the Hall of Faith in Hebrews chapter 11, uh, sort of a, a museum of great men and women of faith displayed to us through the scriptures. Well, they were all motivated by heavenly reward. The Bible says that they looked forward to a city that would come, a reward that would be theirs in the future. It was not theirs in the present day. So they looked forward to heavenly reward of some kind. It's not bad. It's good. It's godly to anticipate reward in the age to come if we've been faithful and God-honoring to the Lord in the here and now. Now, how will we be rewarded in the age to come, in eternity? Well, I can think of a lot of possible ways. It could be the crown of life. That's a reward, isn't it? it could be the crown of victory that God places on his people. That's a reward. It could be the reward of simply hearing those words from Jesus, well done, thou good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your Lord. Won't that be a reward if we were to hear those words from our Savior? Perhaps it will be the reward of a greater sphere of authority in the kingdom age. Now, this gets into a lot of things having to do with um, God's coming plan that I'm not going to get into right now, but I, I believe that that could be an aspect of God's reward, to give individual believers a greater sphere of authority in God's administration in the kingdom age. It could be this. It could be the reward of a greater capacity to enjoy eternal fellowship with God. One person put it like this, that in heaven, everybody's cup will be full, but some people will be given a greater cup as a reward. And as they are filled with all the fullness of God in, in heavenly measure, they'll have a greater measure because they'll have a greater capacity. That could be an aspect of reward. Or how about this? Reward in heaven could be things that we can't even imagine. We can't even dream of what they would be. So all these are ways that God may reward us in the age to come. Now, I need to give a little caveat here. Okay, Here's just a couple principles. Number one, uh, I just believe very strongly that believers will be rewarded now and in the life to come. However, let me add this. I'm going to go back to Matthew chapter 19, verse 27, and I'm going to read the next verse to you. You know, sometimes we come to a much better understanding of the scriptures by simply reading the next verse that comes along. And Matthew chapter 20, uh, Matthew chapter 19, verses 27 and 28 say this, and everyone, again, these are the words of Jesus, and everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my name's sake, shall receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. But, this is verse 28, but 
many who are first will be last and the last first. That statement of Jesus is very important. And as Jesus went on in Matthew chapter 20 to illustrate that principle, I think it really gets our attention. Here's how it gets our attention. God will reward us, but not necessarily according to our expectation. Look, you, you, you may have it all in your mind. Lord, I know exactly how you can and should reward me right now. Lord, you should reward me with a better car, with a bigger house, with a, um, a spouse that I've been waiting upon for years and years. Lord, you should reward me. I faithfully serve you. You sort of dictate to God how he should reward you. Listen, God will reward his people in this life and in the life to come, but... We don't dictate to God how he will reward us. Not at all. The first, let me take Jesus's words again here again. Matthew chapter 19, verse 28. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Jesus didn't say all. Some of the first will be first. Sometimes it works like we would expect. We expect that the first will be first. That's why we call them the first. We expect that the last will be last. We call him the last. God has perfect liberty, and he often does. That's why he said many, to take the first and reward them last, to take the last and reward them first. So we can be assured that God will reward his people both in this life and in the age to come, but, but, not necessarily according to the dictates or the expectation of individuals. So let me just conclude with these principles. Again, Marlene, I want to thank you for your question. Are believers rewarded now or in eternity? I would just say this. Number one, we will be rewarded both in this life and in the life to come. Number one, that's number two right here. We can't dictate or choose our rewards. God chooses our rewards. And sometimes we serve God in a very transactional way, and that's not good. Okay, Lord, I'll do this if you do this for me. God says, no, I'll reward you, but according to my wisdom, my ways, and there's going to be a lot of surprises. Many of the first shall be last and the last first. Friends, I'm going to say it again. We can't dictate to God our rewards. Let me say this too. We also can't dictate to God our trials. Listen, sometimes I think I'd be fine with having trials, with being tested, as long as I could be in charge of what those trials were. As long as I could pick my trials, I'm, I'm fine. But God doesn't work that way in his kingdom, does he? We don't pick our rewards, nor do we pick our trials. But remember this principle, and this is just in conclusion. No one will outgive God. God will reward his people. Huh. Friend, you will never, ever, ever in a million years give more to God than he has given to you in Jesus Christ. It's just impossible. So, um, of course, God will reward his people. Um, He will reward their faithfulness. He will reward their sacrifices. He will reward their their, um, just persistence over the years in honoring him. But again, how God rewards, that's up to him. It's not up to us. We can't choose our rewards or our trials. Well, that's it for the lead question today. Marlene, again, I want to thank you for offering forth that question. Let me head on to the questions that have come in now in our live chat. And again, I want to thank the people for um, contributing these. From TWR360, Char uh, Anon gives this question. I've been following a theology lecture series at a local church. This week's topic was Christology. The speaker, a pastor, made two statements that I'm not sure about. Okay, see what these two statements are that uh, Char Anand is uh, forwarding to us that they heard in a uh, Christology, a class centered on understanding the biblical doctrine about Jesus Christ. Number one, 
When we get to heaven, we will not see God or the Holy Spirit because they are spirits, but we will see Jesus. Okay, that's number one. And then I'll come back and deal with these separately. Number two, while Jesus was on earth as a human, he was unable to do miracles on his own. All of his miracles were done by the power of the Holy Spirit. And then Char adds on, uh, to my thinking, these scriptures don't affirm those statements. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, Exodus 33. Again, several passages here. And then asking, what are my thoughts on this? Okay, well, Char and on. let me just put it to you this way. Number one, I would not say that when we get to heaven, we will not see God or the Holy Spirit because they are spirits. We will see Jesus. Well, certainly we'll see Jesus. And, and if I could be picky here, Char, will you give me the, the opportunity to be a little bit picky with you? I, I don't like how you phrase this question. And again, I'm, I understand I'm being a little bit picky, but allow me this. You say we will not see God or the Holy Spirit. Now, I know what you mean. When you say God, you mean God the Father. Okay, I get that's what you mean, but that's not what you wrote. When we see Jesus Christ, we are seeing God. We're not seeing God the Father. We're not seeing God the Holy Spirit, but we are seeing God. So if I would tweak your, and I, again, I understand I'm being a little picky here, but sometimes in theology, we need to get a little picky. When we get to heaven, if I could rephrase your question, we will not see God the Father or God the Holy Spirit because they are spirits, but we will see Jesus. Now, I would object to that, not just in the picky way of me you know, rephrasing your question. I would object to that because we really don't know what our capabilities will be in heaven. Maybe there is a way for spirits in heaven, uh, even spirits that have a resurrection body as we will have in heaven. Maybe there's a way for spirits in heaven to see or perceive the presence of other spirits. So, um, I would just not be so certain about saying that we will not see God the Father or God the Holy Spirit because they are spirits. Um, we don't know what our capabilities would be like. Now, right now, in our human bodies, and our human capabilities on this side of eternity, we could not see God the Father. That's why it says, speaking of God the Father in the New Testament, no one has seen God because God dwells in visible, unapproachable light, nor the Holy Spirit because he's spirit. But I would just pump the brakes, to use a phrase on that a little, slow down a little bit and say, we don't know what our capabilities of perception will be in our resurrection bodies in heaven. Okay, so that, that's one thing I would say. To answer the second question, while Jesus was on earth as a human, he was unable to do miracles on his own. I would categorically disagree with that statement. Because Jesus was not unable to do miracles in his divine resources. He certainly could have if he chose to. Look, if you're God, you're able to do anything. And Jesus Christ did not stop being God. The second person of the Trinity, God the Son, did not stop being God when he added humanity to his deity and came as the incarnate God-man on this earth. No, he was able to do whatever. Now, he may have chosen not to do things in the power of his deity, but chose to do things as a human being in reliance upon the Holy Spirit. But that's a far cry from saying unable to do things. Do you see the difference there? So I think there's a legitimate place to argue whether all or most of the ministry of Jesus was done simply as a man filled with the Holy Spirit. But to whatever extent that's the case, it's not because he was unable to do them in divine power, but because he chose to lay aside those rights and privileges. He chose not to access those powers. Always God, but he chose not to operate, so to speak, in the power of um, his divine nature the divine resources. Um, so I'm okay with an approach that comes that way. Whether that was an absolute thing in the ministry of Jesus or whether it was a, a, a mostly thing, 
you know, there's a few things that we say, well, this certainly looks kind of divine. I mean, um, you know, what, what, uh, what, what Jesus did in the transfiguration, that, that seems to smack of divinity. We could point to a couple other places as well, but whether we would say it was all or most, I would say that for the most part, Jesus chose, it wasn't a matter of inability, but he chose to do his ministry uh, based on his human nature with human resources, relying on the Holy Spirit. Now again, Taranon, anybody else listening, I, I could see where you say, well, David, you're getting awfully picky about these wordings. You know, you just should. Listen, when we're talking about these important theological concepts, if we're going to talk about them straightforwardly and honestly, we need to realize that our specific words matter. And we need to be careful in how we phrase things and realize that sometimes we're not careful in how we phrase things and work to phrase them better. So, great. Thank you for that question, Charton. I, I hope that's helpful for you. Here's a question that comes from YouTube from Adonis, who says, was revelation written before or after the destruction of the temple? What evidence leads you to this conclusion? Tradition tells us. And and when we say tradition, tradition can be a form of, of history. You know, oftentimes when we say tradition, people think what we mean is um, legends, fairy tales. Not necessarily. Uh, There can be history, accurate history, lying behind traditions. From what we know from the early church, the, the time frame of John writing the book of Revelation, uh, the apocalypse, if you want to term it that way, John wrote the book of Revelation at the end of his life, maybe somewhere around 90 AD, while he was in exile on Patmos, the island of Patmos. Now, we don't know that for certain, because the Bible itself does not tell us that. It tells us that John was on Patmos when he wrote. It doesn't exactly tell us that he was there on exile. It does give us a date. I don't see a compelling reason. I've read a few things that try to make the case that Revelation was written before the destruction of the temple. And I regard that as possible. But I would say there's more weight to the church traditions that we have that it was written later. Um, But, but. In the end, the scriptures don't tell us for sure, and we don't have um, the kind of historical evidence that would really make us confidently say it was one way or another. So I would say that it was likely written as the last book of the New Testament, maybe sometime in the 90s. There's some people give the date 100 AD, whatever. I mean, just towards that end. But I don't think that we can exclude at least the possibility that it was written uh, earlier before the destruction of the temple. There are mentions of the temple in uh, the book of Revelation. And some people say, well, that means that the temple must have been standing. But if John wrote Revelation 20, 25, 30 years after the destruction of the temple, he may be very well looking forward to a rebuilt temple. Uh, something that is mentioned, or at least in mind, prophetically in a few passages. So um, I I hope that's helpful for you there, Adonis. Thank you for that question. Next question comes from uh, Carmel. Carmel asks, in the intertestamental period, there were no prophets until John the Baptist. Could there be a similar period of no prophets from the apostles' time until the two witnesses of Revelation chapter 11, verse 3? You know, um, Carmel, I don't think so. Although, I think it depends on how one specifically defines what this idea is of a prophet. You see, there were non-apostolic prophets 
in the days of the early church. Uh, the book of Acts, um, 1 Corinthians especially, but other New Testament epistles, paint for us the picture that um, prophets were at least in some sense active in the early church, not as authoritative revealers of God's eternal word that was intended for the entire church throughout all ages, but for something that God wanted to communicate by his Holy Spirit to that particular congregation. I take in particular Paul's reference to the work and the ministry of prophets among the Corinthian Christians. There is no book given to us, not scriptural book. There may be a fake book, but there's no scriptural book given to us of the writings of the Corinthian prophets. Whatever God, by the Holy Spirit, legitimately spoke through the Corinthian prophets, the prophets at work in the church in Corinth, in apostolic times, God did not want those words preserved. Why? Because the Holy Spirit was genuinely inspiring those prophets. But what they spoke was not God's eternal word intended for all his people throughout all ages. It was something particular, peculiar, you might even say, to that time, that place. So this is the difference that I would really speak about and, and that I would really emphasize with this idea that um, uh, uh, making a distinction between prophets that speak forth God's eternal word for all generations and all peoples and, on the other hand, um, prophets through whom God speaks to a particular place, a particular congregation, uh, but not in some kind of universal thing for all God's people at all times. Now, if we're using the idea of a prophet to be that universal thing, then I think there, there's definitely an argument to be made from what you're saying. Carmel, that, that God has not spoken through a human being universally to all his church in all places at one time through a particular prophet in that sense. But we, we could see a renewal of that in Revelation chapter 11, verse 3. To come, I, I hope I haven't added confusion to your question here, but that's simply how I would state it, sort of making this distinction between um, the revealing of God's eternal word. And, and, and you know how highly we esteem God's eternal word. We believe it, that the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. That was not true of what the Holy Spirit spoke through the Corinthian prophets, for example. And, and I don't believe that, that such prophets in the early church functioned only in the Corinthian church. Uh, they were in the Roman church. They, they were in the Ephesian church. So there is that distinction. Okay, let me go on to the next question from Alexander. Um, how would you explain, Alexander's question comes from Facebook. Hey, hello, Facebook Live audience. So glad that you could join us here today. Uh, if, if you hadn't heard, I'm speaking to you from Germany. I'm in a hotel room in Siegen, Germany. Um, I'm happy that I'm kind of energized by doing this question and answer because not long before this, I was very tired, uh, suffering from a bit of jet lag, uh, having just a few hours of sleep, maybe two or three hours of sleep in the last 30 hours. That's just how it is when you travel transatlantic and all that. Uh, but I'm very pleased. I'm energized to be here with you and happy to spend this uh, hour. So we've got 25 more minutes or so to spend with you here today on our question and answer. And again, Alex's question is, how would you explain biblical obedience to Jesus? Well, Alexander, um, I, I would just simply not try to overthink it. I hope you understand what I mean by overthinking. To overthink something is to try to go into the minutest, strangest detail, you know, and that, listen, it just means when Jesus said, um, pray privately or in your closet to God, then find a private place to pray. Uh, when Jesus said that we should give, we should give. Just simply not trying to overthink it 
And as simply and straightforwardly as we can, do the things that Jesus commanded us to do. So um, the biblical obedience to Jesus goes beyond the specific commands given by Jesus. Uh, Those are important and precious to us, of course. But we understand that Jesus, the Spirit of Christ, was speaking through those foundational apostles and prophets. It would include everything that we see in what we call today the New Testament, the Greek Scriptures. So um, I would just try to not overthink it, Alexander, and as straightforwardly and as simply as we can, we just simply say, when Jesus says to do something, then I'm going to lean on the Lord and press into him for strength. But God helping me, I'm going to do what Jesus told me to do. When Jesus told us to not do something, then leaning into Jesus, depending on him to the best of my ability, I'm going to try to not do what Jesus told me to not do. So that's how I would phrase it for you there, Alexander. Next question comes to us from Tony. And Tony asks, uh, Tony's part of our YouTube audience. Excuse me, let me take a bit of a drink here. Tony asks, can you explain single and double predestination? Is it biblical and what are your thoughts? Well, Tony, the, the concept of single and double predestination basically applies to this idea. The Bible describes for us how God has predestined his people to receive and experience his saving work in many different aspects. Uh, In Romans chapter 8, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Uh, He's called, justified, adopted, ultimately glorified. All these things are aspects of God's predestined plan, thought out before plan, planned by God ahead of time to work in and through the life of his people. So you can just give that shorthand. I mean, it really is sort of cheating the idea of predestination to call it this, but let me cheat just a little bit and saying somebody being predestined to heaven. God has directed them to heaven, so to speak. That's single predestination. Double predestination includes single predestination. God has predestined some people to heaven, but double predestination says, number two, God has predestined others to hell. Now, I I like to point out, as do many people, I'm not unique in this, that the Bible nowhere specifically teaches that. The Bible nowhere specifically teaches that humanity... You could say that there's been some individuals who were predestined to destruction, most notably Judas Iscariot, the betrayer of Jesus among them. But for humanity as a whole, the Bible never says that God predestines people to hell. Matter of fact, it says that God prepared, Jesus said this, God prepared hell for the devil and his angels. And it would seem that those who go to hell go there by their choice, not by God saying, I prepared a place for them. Even as he would say he's prepared a place for his children, for his people in heaven. So single predestination says God has ordained certain people to go to heaven. Double predestination says God has ordained certain people to go to heaven and God has ordained certain people to go to hell. Now, I find biblical support for the first statement. I do not find biblical support for the second statement. Now, there are people who say, and I'm just trying to give you a background on this. They object and they say, well, it's simply a logical necessity. The scriptures don't have to state that uh, God predestines everybody who's not predestined to heaven. He's pressing them to hell. It's a logical necessity even though the scriptures don't say it. And my response would just be, look, if the Bible doesn't say it, then I don't have to say it. Um, I I like something that the old Puritan commentator, John Trapp said, who he himself may have been a double predestinarian, I don't exactly know. But the old Puritan commentator, John Trapp said this, he said, where the Bible has no tongue, we must have no ears. 
In other words, we can't pretend to hear things that the Bible doesn't say. And it doesn't say that God is predestined in humanity at large of people to go to hell. He has predestined some for heaven, but not to go to hell. So I would disagree with the idea of double predestination. I would be, if you want to say, a single predestinarian. And uh, I, I don't have any problem uh, resting in that and not claiming double predestination as a logical necessity. Hope that's helpful for you there, um, Tony. Okay, another question from our YouTube audience coming from Gal. Gal asks, what is the significance of the story of the fig tree, which was dried out by the Lord Jesus? Does it have implications on the life of born-again believers today? Well, Gal, uh, it certainly does have implications for the life of the believer today. And let me see if I can just explain it very simply. Um, Jesus saw a fig tree which had leaves but no fruit. And look, I'm not an expert in horticulture, but I've seen it in a fig tree that's at our house. And and I've also talked to uh, Israeli tour guides about this. I've asked them this point in question, that these fig trees that Jesus was concerned with were fig trees that the fruit at least begins to appear before the leaves do. So you won't have in a healthy, proper fig tree leaves without fruit. Now, maybe not the fruit isn't fully ripe or something like that. But, but again, in, in a properly functioning, if I could use that term, it sounds like a funny term, it sounds like I'm talking about a computer, but I'm talking about a tree. In a properly functioning fig tree, if there's leaves, there will be fruit. Jesus cursed the fig tree that had leaves but no fruit. And I think this is what he cursed the fig tree about. He cursed the the fig tree regarding uh, what you might call um, false advertising. The fig tree uh, advertised as if it had fruit, but it actually had none. And this is what you might call is a form of hypocrisy. We have an outward appearance that we have a fruitful life for God, but in actuality, we do not. That's hypocrisy. And you could say that Jesus cursed the fig tree as a demonstration of um, his judgment upon hypocrisy in the life of a believer. By the way, you could say that um, the cursing of the fig tree was one of the few uh, destructive miracles that Jesus did. I am running through the banks of my mind. I, I can't really think of another destructive ministry, that, destructive miracle that Jesus did. Um, you could talk about the pigs, the swine that were filled with the demonic spirits, but Jesus didn't make those swine leap off the cliff. They did that as a reaction to any, anyway, let's just say this that this was the only destructive miracle that Jesus performed, or at the very least, one of the few. And he directed it, number one, against hypocrisy, and number two, against a plant, a tree, not against a human being. So that's the implication. Don't, Don't advertise that you're something before God that you're not. Don't put forth an image of spirituality or godliness when you really have. Uh, no reality behind that in your life. Okay, uh, question here from Christian asks from YouTube. Hi, Pastor David, can you provide an example of God chastening a believer for whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives? Hebrews chapter 12, verse 6. Well, um, in the Old Testament, David was chastened by the terrible effects, the consequences of his sin with Bathsheba. That was God's chastening in his life. Uh, You could say that Abraham was chastened uh, over the lying that he did with Pharaoh um, and then later Abimelech. 
and how this was uh, something very um, dangerous for both Abraham's wife, more importantly, Sarah, and uh, Abraham himself. Um, there are other instances we can just say God chastens the believer. You know, the, the agony that Peter went through after denying Christ, that was a form of God's chastening um, in the scriptures. So uh, God's chastening can come in many ways. And uh, just like we can't pick our trials or our rewards, we can't pick our chastenings either. All those things are up to God himself. So um, I think that God may chasten believers in many different ways. And I need to be a little bit careful for this uh, because um, if you say, okay, well, God... God may chasten a believer by this. You're not saying that everybody who experiences this is undergoing the chastening of God. Maybe they are, maybe they're not. Okay, let me just give you an example. It, it's possible that God could chasten a believer by allowing them to experience financial difficulty and stress. Um, they've been lost in materialism, yet they're a child of God. God wants to bring them back. So, he gets their attention by allowing some kind of financial crisis or difficulty. Okay, now I think that principle is true, but you see the danger here. It's immediately assuming that everybody who has financial difficulty, every believer, is being chastened by God. Well, maybe they are, maybe they aren't. We, we don't always know. We usually don't know. So I could give examples, but the, the examples um, need to be taken cautiously. Um, it's... It's not a good place to be to come into other people's lives and to say, you know why God has allowed thus and so and, and what God's purpose is in thus and so. Look, sometimes we know, sometimes we don't. And um, we need to be careful with that. So I hope that helps you there, Christian. Move on to the next question here from God Child, who asks, God hates divorce. So how do I pray for a believer who's going through a messy divorce with an unbeliever? Well, God child, I, I would answer in a few ways. First of all, I would acknowledge that it's true God hates divorce, but he does allow it under specific circumstances. And one of the circumstances under which God will allow divorce is the abandonment of an unbelieving spouse. And this may be exactly what's happening in this believer that you're speaking of. I mean, I don't know. I don't know the situation. And it really um, comes down to doing a deep dive uh, with pastoral wisdom into that person's circumstances where you take the principles of scripture and you measure them against that person's situation and their life. And you just, you, you give them biblical understanding from those things. So having not done that in the life of this person you're saying, I, I would just say, that it, it may be that this is a permitted divorce. So what, what does that mean? Well, just because divorce is permitted doesn't necessarily mean that it's the right thing for a believer to do. There has to be a listening to and a guiding by the Holy Spirit. So that's one thing that you could pray for your friend, this believer that you speak of. Lord, give them wisdom by your Holy Spirit. Lord, if you don't want them to get this divorce and if you want them to, to do something else because you're working behind the scenes in a powerful way to do thus or so, uh, th then Lord, give them wisdom to perceive it. But as well, just pray for the compassionate love of God. Maybe, maybe this uh, believer that you're speaking of is escaping a somewhat... Um, abusive situation. And uh, maybe it's serious enough to where they, they just need to do this and, and they, they need to, to move on from that. Um, that, that. That their partner has so violated uh, the marriage covenant that it would merit that kind of response. Um, then in those situations, you want to pray for healing. You want to pray for God to keep their hearts soft, for God to um, pour out his grace and love so that person would not stay in a relatively traumatized state. 
So those are some of the things I think of that you could pray for for somebody uh, in that situation of, um, of what would I say, of, um, of divorce. Okay, let me uh, go on to the next question coming from Facebook. Uh, doesn't prophet, prophet signify teacher? Kahi uh, able, let's just say able from Facebook, asked this question. Uh, doesn't prophet signify teacher? Um, let, me, let, let me just get straight to it, Abel. No, it doesn't. Um, th that is a sometimes common interpretation, especially from those who believe that um, any kind of miraculous prophetic gift ended with the age of the apostles. Uh, but listen, the, the Bible has the terminology, has the words for teaching and preaching and prophecy. To say that prophecy, as the Bible understands it, is just good teaching or Bible teaching, I think is to really shell, sell short and to misdefine the word. God has these different words used for a reason. There's prophecy for a reason. There's teaching for a reason. There's preaching for a reason. So no, um, prophecy is, is speaking for, for the heart the mind of God, especially in a situation that brings encouragement, strength, comfort to others, as 1 Corinthians uh, spells out to us. Okay. Uh, next question comes from Bob, from our TWR360 audience. Great that you could do this. Bob says, um, do people need to speak in tongues in order to be filled uh, with the Holy Spirit? Bob, the quick answer to that is no. Um, you, you could say that tongues is a physical manifestation of being filled with the Holy Spirit. But it's not the essential evidence. The essential evidence of being filled with the Holy Spirit, I would say, is twofold. Number one, being a witness of Jesus Christ. Knows God's really done something in your life, and you're a witness of that. That's what Jesus spoke about in Acts chapter 1, and also at the end of the Gospel of Luke, that he would give the Holy Spirit and pour it out on people. He would baptize them with the Holy Spirit so that they would be witnesses. That's number one. And number two, I would look forth to the fruit of the Spirit, as described in Galatians. No, the, the gift of tongues is a gift of communication with God. When you look carefully, you can look at my teaching on this in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and 1 Corinthians chapter 14. You can go out. I'm, I'm sure I have it on this YouTube channel uh, or wherever you would like to, to look it up. But when you look at what the Bible tells us in those passages, especially 1 Corinthians 12 and 1 Corinthians 14 about the gift of tongues, we, we see that it is a gift of communication with God. It's a way for the book to communicate with God in a way that transcends their um, human intellect. Now, look, there's some people who, for whatever reason, maybe it's their personality, maybe it's their level of maturity, maybe it's just for whatever. I could suppose you could think of four or five other reasons. But for whatever reason, they just don't feel a need for that. They feel perfectly satisfied with their ability to communicate with God uh, just on a normal verbal level in their own intellect and that. I, I would say, in a sense, that person, uh, you could say they don't need the gift of tongues, you could say they don't know that they need the gift of tongues, but they're not aware of their need. I more so prefer that people have an awareness of need I have more praise to give to God than I can articulate. I have prayers that I want to pray that I don't know what to pray or how to pray. I, I, I need some divine inspiration by the Spirit of God to pray in me and through me. And uh, these are reasons to seek forth the gift of tongues. I, I think that there's been a fair amount of damage in um, the Christian world 
especially in some charismatic circles, by demanding that the gift of tongues is the evidence of the filling of the Spirit. It makes people seek the gift of tongues simply to prove something, either to themselves or to other people, that I really am filled with the Holy Spirit. And I, I don't think that that's a good or a valid reason to. I think it invites a lot of fakery, a lot of just going through the motions. Okay, uh, we're going to finish up with this last question from our YouTube viewer, uh, Charmaine who asked this question. Can you please explain how did Jesus learn obedience through suffering, as the scripture says? Well, this is found for us in the book of Hebrews. It's a chapter four where um, the author of the letter to the Hebrews gives this dramatic statement that uh, the Lord Jesus Christ learned obedience by the things which he suffered. Well, think of the many ways that Jesus suffered. Think of how he suffered with um, uh, being so close around sinful humanity. Think of how he had to suffer with um, the frustrations he received from his disciples. Think of how he had to suffer when his own family rejected him. Think of how he had to suffer, um, you know, in many different aspects. Of course, and I'm not even getting to the great suffering that Jesus experienced in his death, um, the, the arrest, the beating, the mocking, the scourging, the crucifixion, all of it. Jesus suffered greatly, and God the Father, working in and through God the Son, enabled him to learn obedience through those sufferings. In other words, suffering was a appropriate or befitting instrument in the hand of God the Father to shape obedience in God the Son. And the whole point of this, as it's put forth in Hebrews, is how dare we despise suffering as a tool that God might use in our life? So I think these are important points for us to consider. Um, it, it's possible. Well, let me close with this. In James chapter uh, one, the letter of James starts out with James, um, first of all, saying we should count it all joy no matter what trials we fall into. And then immediately he follows that up with a recommending that believers pray for wisdom. Well, I think there's a connection between the two things. We particularly need wisdom from God when we're in the midst of a trial and a suffering. And part of what we want wisdom from God for is simply this. God, do you want to deliver me from this suffering? Or do you want to deliver me in this suffering? God can work either way. And he can work powerfully for his glory either way. But that's a question asked that many people don't even ask. They just assume because I want the trial to end that it's God's will for that trial to end right here, right now. Um, but God may be working a larger purpose. But then again, there's other people who God would give them deliverance and victory from that particular trial right there at that moment if they would trust him for it. So what's the solution? We need wisdom from above to really grab a hold of these things and to walk in them. Folks, that's going to be our last question for the day. I'm so pleased that you could join me. I, I'm not going to lie to you. I'm tired. I'm going to go to bed pretty soon after this, because like I said, in the last 30, 32, 34 hours, whatever it's been, I've only gotten a couple hours of sleep. That's just how it is when you travel. I'm not complaining, but I'm just saying that we are wrapping it up for today. We've had a wonderful hour. And uh, if you don't mind, um, pray, pray for this trip that I'm on, the churches I'm going to preach at, the pastors I'm going to connect with, the wonderful brothers and sisters, even the family that we'll make connection with later on. Pray for God's blessing upon it all. I appreciate those prayers. And if you're watching this later, as I suppose more of you watch this later than you do even when it's live, uh, maybe you would pray that God would give me wisdom in the ministry I have connected to travel. Um, I don't want to travel just for the sake of traveling, but God has given me so many wonderful relationships with dear brothers and sisters all over the world that I think Part of it is stewardship that would have me take good care, so to speak, of these relationships and invest in them by uh, visiting when I can. So I appreciate your prayers in that regard.
God bless you. Thank you so much for joining us today. And God willing, and if we live, we will be back a week from now with a live stream from Sweden. God bless you. You've been listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry and how to grow in your relationship with Jesus, please visit EnduringWord.com.